Welcome, one and all, to the Film Harmonic with your hosts, Noah East and Andy Ferguson. In episode 39, we will review the big Valentine's Day weekend romance film, The Photograph, starring Lakeith Stanfield and Nisa Ray. And in our Pick 6 segment, we will be ranking the six best career performances of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Leading us into the throwback challenge to close out the show, in which I challenged Andy with Gaspar Noe's 2015 erotic near-pornographic drama, Love. And he challenged me with the Academy Award winner for Best Foreign Language Film at the 1990 Oscars, the Italian love letter to film Cinema Paradiso. So, Andy, we finally have a fully stocked show before for the first time, basically, since award season. So, what do you say we dig right in? I'm ready. Our lead film this week is a romance drama starring Lakeith Stanfield and Issa Rae as two young professionals tackling a budding romance and much more. Written and directed by Stella McGee, it's time to discuss The Photograph. The Photograph. So, The Photograph. Uh, We had our choice, uh, basically, it came down to Blumhouse's Fantasy Island, Sonic the Hedgehog, or The Photograph. We were already kind of interested in The Photograph, so that easily took the winner this weekend. Yeah. Um, The other two were like, nah, no, no. And I think for the the reason, the biggest reason for me at least, and I assume it was the same for you, is that Keith Stanfield is the lead in this film. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I don't really know much else about anyone involved in this. Yeah. Other than Kelvin Harrison Jr. and And Rob Morgan. um, There's a random other supporting performance in here. It's like, what? Yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, I didn't know much about Issa Rae, but I'm glad I do now. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that she has done comedy as mm-hmm. well in her career, mm-hmm. so. Neither one of us are familiar with Insecure, the show that she's kind of popular for right now, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so this film takes place um, in a couple of different timelines and, 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 and states. There's New York City where we meet Michael, played by Lakeith Stanfield, who is a journalist for The Republic. He's doing a story on a famous photographer who has recently passed away. And during his research for the story, he meets May, played by Issa Rae, who we mentioned. Um, they develop a budding romance, and it is um, intertwined with the story we learn about that he's researching, which is of this photographer, and a lot of the time spent on it is during the 80s in Louisiana, where we kind of learn where May grew up with this photographer, and then the connection between the past and the present. That's what this movie's about. Kind of plain and simple. Yeah. Um, And Stella McGee directs it kind of plain and simple, which I admired honestly yeah i really appreciated that too actually just it's it's not flashy it's not showy she not just kind of has has like a the the feel of like a like a romance drama from like the late 80s early 90s that kind of thing i agree and i think that's that a, i think it's a strong point i think people are it, it's gotten kind of lukewarm reception but i think people aren't respecting it for what it is and that is that it's just an old school classic kind of romance film and yeah. it's not overly glossy it's even robert glasper's score is very throwback it's yeah. a very jazz sultry throwback and i love that about it and uh, he kind of understands that and so does stella mcgee with her 
whole screenplay. She wrote this as well. Um, there are some problems with the throw of the uh, flashbacks and then, you know, here and there. Yeah, but. it starts to get a little derivative at times mm-hmm. of other, you know, r- romantic drama, not comedy like cliches. But it's but. hard in this day and age, this far into the game with films, uh, you know, just cinema in general to be wholly original in this True. kind of genre. True. And you don't really have to be. Um, what you have to have, though, is a believable uh, front couple yeah and and i think this movie has that yeah has a great lead couple that you actually buy as as a couple you see the chemistry that that Issa ray and lakeith stanfield have together Mm -hmm. uh, um is dependent entirely on them being charming uh both together on screen and then separately on screen as well and the way they they react with other people and it's it's it seems really genuine and they seem like genuinely good people even mm-hmm. outside of each other. So you really start yeah. to root for them. You like each one of them and yeah. you, you are rooting for them to be together, but at the same time, it's like if they don't end up together, at least they're great people and, yeah, they'll exa- be fine. and they will be fine yeah. no matter what. But yeah. when they interact with other people in this movie, they both interact with people from her past that he's interviewing and she knows and people she doesn't know yet. Yeah. But, they also interact with their personal friends and co-workers, and those stories are kind of nice, too. Yeah. Lakeith Stanfield and Kelvin Harrison Jr. have their moments that are nice. And I'm blanking this co-worker that Issa Rae has, but she's very fun in the film, too. Yeah, she's, she is good, and she's a good friend to her. Yes, absolutely. They both are. Yeah, exactly. Both sides. And that's nice. Um, Lakeith Stanfield's work environment isn't really touched on too much, and even not that well i would argue with his boss scenario with chelsea peretti and all that yeah and i I would say the same thing about her work life as well like you really don't know much about her it's not really concrete at all and the the film doesn't it doesn't care about those kind of things it doesn't but it also wants to tell you you know it wants it wants to also emphasize work and life and romance balance True, because these are professionals who who where their jobs are pretty important to them absolutely yeah. yeah they've spent a lot of their personal time Really, sparing their personal time because they have so much put in so much into their work, invested into it. Yeah. Um. So I think that it lacks slightly in showing the work life of these people. True. I and I agree with that. Um. But it doesn't hold like I. I could look past a lot of some of the minor flaws in this movie. Yeah. Because because they're both so great. Yeah. The, the two performances are so great. Um, and then some of the other minor supporting performances from Rob Morgan. Rob Morgan especially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's the standout, and Courtney B. Vance has some good scenes. He has two really important scenes, actually. Mm-hmm. So there's, there, there's a lot of good performances that rise slightly above some of the cliche-ridden moments. Yeah. And then I think I like where it ends up. So, I mean, it's is a nicely packaged Valentine's Weekend movie. It is. And I, I just... Man, Lakeith Stanfield's so charming. He's great. I hate to beat a dead horse, but he really is. He's one of our great young actors. He's absolutely. He's. I don't even mean it's going to be. I'm so excited to see where he goes. Yeah, when we both put him on our best young actors under Mm. 40 list, we we're going to look like soothsayers in five years when he's like when he's like he's when he's Black Ryan Gosling or something. You know what I mean? He's going to be sky's the limit. Yeah. Yeah. But that being said, I think Issa Rae is my favorite part of this film. I just think she's so captivating. I think she has the most nuanced performance, and that's why I think Mm. she gives. And she's up for the task. So I think, yeah, she's the standout. Well, it's almost like Keith even takes a little bit of a step back. Intentionally, yeah. He's kind of, he's there, of course, but he's very easygoing, very not, he's He's like the film. He's He's so cool. 
showy at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's And I don't think he ever really is. Can you I mean can you remember no, 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 a time no. when he ever has been showy? No, but this he gets to even dial it down a little bit more, you know, and kind of be laid back. The, in Sorry to Bother You, he has to get crazy in moments. And because the, the, the Boots Riley stuff in that movie called for it. Yeah, he asks you know? him to do a lot. He does. In this, he can kind of just be just the cool guy. And then, and, but it never felt cliched at all. So I uh, overall really enjoy this movie. I didn't love it, but I enjoyed it. So I'm at a three and a half on it. I am at a three and a half also. I think this feels like a very three and a half yeah. film. Yeah. I'll revisit it in the future and be happy with it. Yeah. I, I probably will do the same. Who knows? It might hold up even better with time. Well, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, Andy and I are going to tackle a very tough pick six, dissecting the career performances of one of history's greatest actors, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Stick around, and we'll be back in 60 seconds. Drinking coffee out of styrofoam You said I should have brought my own mug I said, yeah, me too You said, well, what can you do? Take my number down We can meet up when we're both in town said don't worry I'm quitting I said yeah I believe you there's nothing you can't breathe through even when money's tight we all got demons that keep us up at night back ready for round two welcome back to the show six years ago we lost one of the greatest singular talents this art form has ever known philip seymour hoffman on today's pick six we aren't ranking the best films he's been in but rather the six best performances of his remarkable but tragically shortened career so uh as always andy we're going to start with you what do you have at number six okay well performances here yes very uh, we had a large category to shop from um i mean i agree with what you said easily one of the greatest artists not just of this century or whatever but just ever um so yeah uh i had to dwindle down a list of about 20 to six here so it's a really tough task it is it is yeah even more surprising than you thought it would be yeah absolutely especially after some rewatches which i had uh throughout the week but um number six for me is um his role as lancaster dodd in the master excellent um i know i've never placed this movie as high as you but that would almost be impossible because i'd have to place it the highest rating of any movie <laughs> so uh, i've i've ever i've never actually loved this film although i love paul thomas anderson i have never loved this movie but i will say this is one of his best performances so it had to be on this list um 
without Philip Seymour Hoffman being as equally mysterious and equally, he's almost, he's menacing in this film, but he's comedic at times and he's very bizarre at times, but he's never less than magnetic. Yeah. And um, he keeps you interested in the character at all times and how he's trying to control the environment that he's in at all times. And as Lancaster Dodd in this, I, I couldn't leave him off. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's a pretty focused performance in a way that could only have been of, I mean, he achieved it, you know, based on his own brilliance, but also working with a director he had been with for many films in already. Exactly, and that helps yeah. big time yeah. in, in this particular performance where he's he's not the lead, he's, you know, but he is the... the it's not the most bombastic performance in the film, but he's still the largest, like, looming character in it. Yeah, yeah, and, and I would argue not many actors could have pulled that off other than him, maybe no one else other yeah. than him. So that's, what, that's a lot of what I'm basing on my picks is that could anyone else have done this other than Philip Seymour Hoffman? I think that's a pretty important distinction to make, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why number uh, six on my list is his r- turn as the villain in Mission Impossible 3. Wow, okay. This one made your list. It made my list. I know. I, I saved it for the sixth spot All right. for All right. a reason. Um, I-, I That was just... I never thought he was the type of actor that we would ever get to see him play the villain in a big tentpole action film. No, you no, know what I mean. Especially this kind of franchise. This was this was people people make it out that Along Came Polly is the like biggest like odd uh, career choice for him of, mm-hmm. of his entire filmography. I don't think that's as big a leap as this is. And somehow he pulled it off. He does. Because he's yeah. menacing. Well, he can be. He, he can be very unlikable, as he portrayed a little earlier on in something like The Talented Mr. Ripley, where he's just, yeah. you hate him. Or even Punch Drunk Love, where where he's, you know, super angry. Funny and terrible. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Exactly. And, and so uh, this could have come off as really hokey. If another actor had tried it, sure. But I didn't. I don't think anybody could have pulled it off quite as well as as he did. By uh, he, he just makes it so believable. He's one mm-hmm. of the most believable villains that that franchise has had for that reason. It's nowhere near the best film in the in the series. No, but it might be the best villain. I'm trying to think of a better one. Exactly. You know. Exactly. And so that's why I saved the sixth spot for such a fun, fun turn from him. Sure. I like that pick. All right. What's okay. at number five for you? All right. Number five for me is his turn in the title role of Capote. Uh, awesome. As Truman Capote, of course. Yeah. This film takes place as he was putting together In Cold Blood. And um, Catherine Keener, has her, in her turn as Harper Lee, was really, really nice to revisit, actually. I recently rewatched it again. Um, hadn't seen it in a while. Yeah, she's really um, understated in it. Very good. She's great. A lot of good people turn up in this movie that yeah. you forgot about. Yeah, Chris Cooper, for example. Yeah, and he's got that very distinct... Throw Chris Cooper in like a period piece from the 50s, 60s. And in a role like this, yeah. where, he's a, where he's a cop. Yeah, he yeah. and he can do that in his sleep. Yeah, and uh, I was really impressed by Bruce Greenwood in this as well. That was an interesting role for him, yes. Yeah. Clifton Collins Jr. is, is quite good in it. Um, but, but this is a really great debut, American debut, from Ben, from and ben Miller. Miller, man. Yeah, um, and 
You know, Bennett Miller was one of the closest friends to Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, and uh, you could really see why. They work really well together. They did again in Moneyball. But uh, I don't think anyone else could have done this quite like him. No, I Playing this agree. role. And <clears throat> I remember when we first saw this, and you're like, at, at the very first moment when you see him in this, you're like, can he really pull this off? But he keeps steadiness of this portrayal throughout this movie and you're like he embodies this character yeah, it's it never seems hokey amazing to watch him do it yeah because think about how many actors could have tried and just not really pulled it off that is not easy this no. role is not easy no and it would have made this film like a disaster this film is was a big risk a huge especially swing. for a first yeah. time director oh my god you know yeah and he nails it we, we will definitely talk more about this all right one all later. right let's go what's number five for you uh number five for me is his performance uh as the priest in doubt mm, okay um i rewatched this this weekend it's on netflix it is on netflix and um there are scenes with just him and meryl streep where they're go their characters are going toe to toe and the way he shares the screen with her is that there was a moment i don't remember it was the scene in which she finally accuses him and all three of them are going around the, the table basically at the in his office um and i thought wow th- this he's he really is like a a legend on on pretty much near her her level her status sure it's he's that like He's that impressive and, and towers over a scene, even when she is in the same scene. It's crazy. Yeah, that was quite a moment where you were like, it was like confirmation of what was yeah. happening in a career, you know? Yeah. That, that I mean, yeah, because... He already had his Oscar, but like this Yeah, was, but I mean... This is when he... Oof. Was that a, he was at another gear. When you're right there in scenes with someone like that. Yeah. And you're not only holding your own, but you're actually equal... Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah. That's that's when it really hit home for me. Yeah. I like this pick. So All yeah, right. uh, number four for you. Number four for me is a pre. It's pretty early on. It was definitely before his Oscar and before he was a more of a well-known name. Um, he had already been in some P.T. Anderson movies and all that, but um, again, in the titular role. As Dan Mahoney in Owning Mahoney. Um, oh. This is a film that I saw when it came out, and I was mesmerized by it. I saw it, actually, it was somehow saw it in the theater when it came out. It was a very short run here in the early 2000s. But a recent rewatch had me again, like, amazed. Like, this film is a true story about someone who had such a gambling addiction and and then became very intertwined with... He had a opportunity, we'll say, to embezzle money, and um, it consumed him. And the performance in this movie is, it really kind of digs deeper than most on that sort of addiction. Yeah. And he loses himself in the role, and I thought, again, this is another one that I couldn't not have on this list. Yeah, I've not seen this one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely put it put it on your list because I think it's one of the easily one of his best performances. Throwback. <laughs> yep, I'm making a note right now. <laughs> Throwback, 2020, some point. Uh, number four on my list is his performance as Lancaster Dodd in The Master. Mm, okay, I'm, 
I think you might be, I, I was thinking you might be a little surprised that it was this low. No, not really, okay. because, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you're ranking these things. He's not the main actor in this movie. True. Um, He's ter- terrific in it. Like, of course. Like, I've yeah. talked about this a lot, so we don't need to belabor mm-hmm. the point. Yeah. But the, uh, the, especially, you know, I make a big deal about how good Joaquin is in the big, the big uh, uh, scene, the his well, first, you know, testing, oh, the interrogation, the interrogation scene. scene. But uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is every bit as good at, as, as he is in that scene. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't work without the two of them. No, you need both so, for sure. Uh, I, I, I've praised his performance in this film enough. That's my number four. We can we okay. can move on. All right, number three. Number three for me is a important um, performance slash movie in my just general appreciation for film, and that's his role as Lester Bangs in Almost Famous. I was wondering if um, this would make your list. It had to. I mean, thinking about it again, I had to stop myself from being like, ah, it doesn't. Screen time doesn't necessarily matter the most. It's an impact on what they leave on the film. And again, could anyone else have done it this well? I don't think so. It's hard to think of an actor who could have pulled off the Lester Bangs role in Almost Famous that well. And I think he's a key cog in the movie in that he's the one person who's kind of leading that character along and giving that character the advice and opinions that they need to not just quit every stop along the way. Yeah. And he, he's like, he's like one of those sages, you know, like for lack of a better term, but it's a modern, he's one. very funny. He's got a lot of energy, but he's also like very wise in the film. And yeah. And you know, that person in general is known for being kind of controversial, but also one of the most knowledgeable people in, in music. Um, along the way and uh, it's fun to think about you know just uh, what it might have been like on set and Cameron Crowe writing that role really Cameron Crowe knew Lester Bangs that character's famously you know penned after Cameron Crowe himself the kid the Patrick Fugit plays but it's fun just to I mean, and Lester Bangs, he looked exactly like him almost. Oh, did he really? Yeah. I didn't wild. know that. Just look it up sometime. Okay. He's physically just looked a lot like him, too. He embodied that role. So, had to, had to have it on here. Okay. Great performance. Okay. Totally. Number three for me is uh, Synecdoche, New York, mm-hmm. which I'm... I'm banking is going to be pretty high on your list. Oh, absolutely. We'll talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Now, I toyed with all three of my top three at number one. Okay. It, this was there for a minute. I mean, I mean, I've I've toyed with all of them. All so right. this is this is a tremendous, like big time, all timer performance. Um, uh, if this was in somebody else's filmography, it, uh, it it might be the the their biggest biggest performance, the thing that got them their Oscar. But for some reason. Um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman has multiple versions uh, where he where he's done that uh, he's, before. So. It's tough competition, for yeah. sure. But uh, uh, he, the way he plays um, an old man and it's still so believable. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that that's I think one of the quirkiest, funnest things that he's done in his career playing playing such an old man. Yeah, I mean he pulled off a wide range of things in this performance he pulls off like absurd comedy 
mm-hmm. and and lands it. Um, it. It's some of the most depressing scenes I've ever seen. And he pulls those off too. Like there's a lot of gravitas that he mm. brings to this performance, and it's it's a pretty staggering work. I like that it's in your top half. Yeah, I, we're definitely going to be talking about it soon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Okay, moving on. We're just truck. Tr- Trucking right along. Yeah, number two. Number two for you. Number two for me is his role as Andy in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. That was my number. Um, that was my number seven. It is. Uh, I have a feeling that if you would have gotten around to rewatching it, you might have had it in here because I, I did, and it's. Something. I know. It's I just didn't want to. I didn't want to put it on the list if I didn't. Really yeah, it's it. a. It's it's an especially hard one to watch because he has this heroin addiction and. Then it's um, so realistic. Mm-hmm. Well, what do I know? But it it, well, seems, I mean, it feels so. When you know a lot about you know just him personally, it's hard to watch. Yeah. Um. But uh, it, it's it's not only just him fully co- committing to be a lead that is despicable and just disrespectful to respectful to his own family and just a, not a good person greedy, um, for him to commit to that fully, um, in Sidney Lumet's final film, by the way. Yeah. Um, and Sidney Lumet for him to go out this way is just like a big swing and a, he nailed it. Um, challenging a lot of actors, Ethan Hawke and Marissa Tomei are challenged hard here and they deliver as well. Um, but even among all these people, Albert Finney also, uh, Hoffman's the single best part of this film. Yeah, you can't take your eyes off of him. No, and he's uh, he's orchestrating the madness of this movie. Every person is a player in what he's doing. Michael Shannon's even in this film, and he's quite good in it. Um, he's he's that king on the chessboard, and it's uh, he's. This one was especially hard not to kind of like get a little emotional watching with him. And yeah. and just because and, of know, how, how close him, to home it hits yeah, for him. But then you watch him and you're like, what the fuck, man? He's not going to, he's not around. We don't have another PSH movie. Coming. We'll never get one. No, we'll never get it's another. It's never one. coming back. That's so upsetting. It's, it's, it sucks. Yeah. And this is one of those movies that makes you really remember that. And it does. You, you extra All of feel them do, that. but this one is kind of, yeah. 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 So that's uh, two for me. What's two for you? Number two for me is, uh, so we're talking about his career performances. And uh, so I gave extra credit to the fact that he won his Oscar for playing Truman Capote. And so I, I, I put that at, at not quite number one, but uh, he, you said it earlier, he is really like, this, this is a role that you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect that he could pull off. And, and if he didn't pull yeah. it off, it would have been a huge disaster. Um, but, you know, they, they put other people on like little risers and made him seem, you know, diminutive and kind of short mm-hmm. because that's how the real Capote was. And then that affectation with his voice, oh. that is a really, talk about a big swing to take. Yeah, it was a huge swing. But he pulls it off. He really Somehow does. he pulls it I, off. I, I, because it because it never feels like he's making fun or or um or if it's like it's in jest at all. Not um, really. I would say maybe the first couple of line deliveries early on I'm like that very first scene when he's when he's talking in the circle at a party. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like mm. but no, he eases right into it and it's like this guy, this is the biggest proof that the guy 
was never bad in anything and never could be bad in anything. And that he could literally do any, anything and you would believe it. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I don't know. I, I don't know of people on more than one hand that could pull off this performance. Yeah. I don't. In any way. Yeah. Maybe less than that. Okay. So it's down to number ones now. You know what mine is. I, I believe I do. Go ahead and tell it's, us. Is role as uh, Caden Cotard in Synecdoche, New York. Um, what else can we say? It was the first and only meetup of Charlie Kaufman and Philip Seymour Hoffman. It seemed destined to happen. And I think um, it might have even happened again later on. If, it would have, yeah. yes. But you know what? I'm glad it happened once. And it happened. the level of greatness achieved is about as good as you could imagine. Um, I still don't think that movie gets enough credit as being like the undertaking that it was, not just his performance, but the movie in general, for it to even come across as anything coherent was a great achievement. Um, <laughs> yeah. And even you could argue it's not 100% coherent, but that's the point, I think. Oh, and, for um, sure. And it, again, doesn't work without him. And there's no one else that could have done it. Nobody I keep else. saying yeah. this, but... Yeah, but this is another really concrete example. A lot of great casting in this movie and a lot of performances, but this is, I mean, PSH in general, in, up front is just remarkable what he can do here. Um, the wide range of not just emotions, but age ranges, like we said. I mean, he basically is believable in this movie as a 30 year old and an 80 year old yeah. and everywhere in between um and it's uh it's deeply comical deeply disturbing all at the same time and it's just it's a very unique piece of work i'm talking about the performance and the film yeah yeah so it, it was always going to be number one for me i figured it would be yeah uh i'm surprised for you twi- and number one for you twister by the way yeah i'm guessing <sighs> well why do you have to spoil a surprise i'm guessing <laughs> No, uh, number one for me, and I'm really surprised that this isn't on your list, but I get it that it is a supporting performance in a gigantic cast of other supporting performances. Oh, I see. Um, But his role as Phil in Magnolia... Number one? ...is number one for me, and here's why. Okay. So when I was thinking about this, the greatest uh, performances of his career, I whittled it all the way down to what's the one scene that I think is the most memorable scene of his entire career. And the first thing I think of when I close my eyes and think about it, the body of his career, I think of the scene with him and Jason Robards when Robards is dying, Mm -hmm. like the big scene. Yeah. And that's the first thing that comes to mind. And his performance as Phil, the, the scene where he's where he's going through the the, the porno mags to mm-hmm. find the to find the number for Frank Frank T Mackey's uh, uh, fucking hotline, yeah, yeah. Uh, customer support or whatever. And he's on the phone <laughs> with customer support for a third of the film. It seems like yeah. it's just and 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 he pulls that off. Like you said, it's it's a whole big huge chunk of the film it is and uh well not that huge but it's it's there but though. it's but it's there and and you're still you're on that ride with him you don't know exactly what he's doing at first and um but you're compelled just by this guy being on the phone and like bare, and like only talking half the time it's it's a it's a tremendous performance do you think tom 
Cruz went to J.J. Abrams and he was like, dude, I've worked with this guy before. And it's oh, like, shit. listen. <laughs> I have a working relationship with listen, this guy. Listen, I think he'd be great as the villain in Mission Impossible 3. <laughs> what year did Mission Impossible 3 come out? I'm pretty sure Magnolia's 99 and Mission Impossible 3 was 2005, maybe. Okay. It's not too not long. too far apart. Yeah. I never even thought about that. It's fun to think about. Yeah. Connections like that. God. But man, I you know what? Um... Yeah, I don't know why I never considered it for the six. It's a hard list. Um, that film in general would be in my top 25 movies, favorite movies. Yeah, me ever. too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't blame you for this pick. It's a great performance. It's an important performance to the film as a whole. Um, it's one of his most genuinely good people he's ever played. He's yeah. really just a good person. Yeah. Um, I think that helps. Just, yeah, I mean, he's he, he tends to be very flawed and kind of unlikable in a lot of films. Yeah. But in this, he's just a very good guy, much like Jack Goes Boating, which I considered for this list, which you definitely need to see. Yeah, at some that's, point. that's the very next on my Philip Seymour Hoffman list. But I think Phil as, in Magnolia is a very, just another notch in his diversity, you know? Yeah. Um, which P.T. Anderson really got him to be diverse every time out. really brought it out of him yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. um and then i mean like you said the diversity from being able to play mission impossible um uh uh uh, trying to dunk on people and and along came polly yeah as you mentioned he's in twister he's extremely vile in the talented mr ripley that almost made my list the savages almost made i love the savages there's just so many great performances this guy yeah gave us so yeah. we still have a lot to uh to be grateful for boogie nights man yes <laughs> i was wondering if that was gonna make your list all right well um we haven't done the throwback challenge in quite a while it's true we're back though we are it's it's time so for newer listeners the throwback challenge is where we force one another to watch a classic or notoriously underwatched film that each one of us has missed throughout the years neither one of us know the film that the other has selected for each beforehand and then we discuss them on the next episode so last week i challenged andy with gaspar noe's 2015 unsimulated sex-filled drama love and he challenged me with cinema paradiso which was the academy award winner for best foreign language film at the 1990 oscars so, uh, let's start with you, Andy. Um, what'd you think of Gaspar Noe's Love? Okay, well, um, this has been on my list for a while now. We, You presented me with this movie a while, How long ago? I don't even know. A couple months? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then award season hit. Like yeah, a, and came like, kept, a, like a typhoon. Well, the decade was ending, and yep, so we kept too. having to change our priorities. But uh, I finally watched this uh, yesterday. Um, I was reminded... Put it off until the last day. <laughs> Well, yeah, now I see why. Um, oh, really? The only other F- Gaspar Noe film that I've seen, I was reminded of this, and was is Irreversible. Oh. And I hadn't seen that since it came out, which was 2002, maybe? Okay. So I was reminded, well, not really reminded, but when I saw Irreversible when it came out, I was probably graduating high school. So I thought it was very unique and cool the way it was made. And I was watching movies a little differently. Now I'm just like the way I see this film and see Noe as a filmmaker is, I don't know. I'm very, I saw the main character of this movie as basically himself 
he kind of looks like this guy. Okay, I get that. And the guy, the lead actor in this movie is so unlikable. Ugh. And it's disgusting. A terrible human being yeah. and pretentious. And this movie is basically about a American wannabe filmmaker who's gone to Paris to study film. Likes to tell everyone that. Yep, loves it. Don't even really see him doing anything involving filmmaking, um, studying it at all. But he's there to study filmmaking, apparently. And he gets involved with uh, a, a woman, a local woman. And uh, they have a relationship that you see in flashbacks because he is currently in a scenario where he's involved in a relationship with someone else that he he got in so he's he has a child with a woman in this movie as you find yes. out and you find out how he gets to that point uh because when he was in a previous relationship which he'd still obsessed with um it, it was a torturous relationship um he those two invited another woman into their bed, and he kind of messed around with that woman also off on his own. Yes. Because he's a fuckboy, for lack of a better <laughs> word. The movie will tell you that. Um, yeah. He can't resist it. Uh, when his girlfriend leaves town, he decides to hang out with that other woman who lives across the hall. And his condom stops working, and <laughs> that girl who's pro-life adamantly pro-life gives birth to a baby and it's his and you find out later on through a lot of flashbacks in this film that he basically has to marry that woman (laughs) (laughs) and be a father even though he doesn't want to do any of that um and so this movie spends a lot of time retracing the relationship with the woman he's not no longer no with. No longer with, but still super obsessed with. Yes. Pining over still. And the plot thread is that no one really knows where this woman is at this time. And she's kind of off the map. And he's contacting her mom and trying to find out where she is because he's clearly obsessed with her. Um, to the point where the woman that he's with even notices and is takes a lot of disdain towards it all. Um I, this movie is much talked about for its sexual scenes. Yep. Um, and that is a pretty big focal point uh, to the. It, there's large, unedited, one take, not just sex scenes, but scenes in general. Yeah. Um, but I would I would argue that this movie is not necessarily about sex as it is about addiction, really. I was I going to say he has a I mean, and it's a sex addiction. No, there's that, and there's a lot of of the repercussions of drug addiction in this movie too. True. Um, it is a film about addicts. Um, it's also a film about ego for sure. Oh, for sure. Um, there's a lot of immaturity and naivety to it all. I get that these people are very young, and he is especially, and he puts his ego above everything else. There's a lot of shouting matches in this movie. The movie's too long, I think. Oh, yeah, I, I can agree there. It's two hours and 15 minutes, and the way it's filmed, it feels even longer than that. Um, there, and, and I would argue that the scenes of 
extreme pornographic nature are there for what else other than shock value? I don't know. I mean, they're... I mean, he is... He loves to provoke. He does, and I've only seen one of his other films. So, I mean, I've heard... I've read a lot of people say that this is his least a provocative movie, which is, I, I find that. hard to believe because there are scenes in this with, you know, full ejaculation and lots... I mean, there's like... Very graphic scenes in this film. Yes, um, but and there's there's multiple ones. But it's really well shot. I, I there are times when it is, but I'm not distracted distracted by that enough or moved by it enough ever mm-hmm. in this movie. I just think it's because listen, there's a lot of films that are focused on bad people that I'm enthralled by, but it has to be like. That I'm so fascinated by the portrayal from the performances. I don't really think that this guy in the main role is that good. He's okay. I I, I just wanted to slap him mostly. It, and it sounds I'm just not moved by it. It sounds to me like you hated this. I don't hate this film, but I don't like it. Okay, what are you all. giving it? Uh, I'll be. I'll go. I'll go a two on this. I don't. Wow, hate that's higher than I thought you were going to I don't hate the movie. Okay. Um, there's a lot of potential shown in bits and pieces of it, but at the same time, I just grew tired of the extended, if it really earned its extended scenes of extreme sexuality, that would have been one thing. Like a movie like that calls to mind, like something I would compare this to, but that did a better job was the dreamers that Bernardo Bertolucci film. Eva Green and Michael Pitt from like the early 2000s. I didn't see it, but I remember it. I feel like that movie, although not nearly as pornographic, still was NC-17 at the time and was like racy for for the time. Yeah. But I felt like the characters were better in that. Um, I just didn't care for the people in this movie that much. Well, then we're going to have the opposite problem with this next film. And that is the uh, 1988 Italian drama Cinema Paradiso. Okay. Directed by Giuseppe Tornatore. Mm-hmm. Did I get that one right? Okay. I think you did. I'm not going to try any more Italian names because I'll butcher them all. Okay. But this film essentially starts out with the uh, with this, this famous... They don't say what he's actually famous for, but the plot description will tell you that he's a famous filmmaker who... Um, uh, finds out that the that someone has died, and we don't know who it is yet. Um, but it, I don't think it's spoiling anything to tell you that the, the he it then jumps straight into flashbacks, and we find out that the person who has died most likely is the 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 man who founded his love for film uh, because he was the projectionist at the local theater in their small town in Italy. Um, and so he starts out when he's a boy. Um, there's a middle section where he's a, a, a hunky young man. Um, and then, then we get right back to the end. But the, the, the him being old stuff is barely in this film at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the big, big crux of this film is him as a little kid, which is adorable. And then him as a real hunky older guy. Um, not even an older guy. He's like an older kid. He's like, what, 18, would you mm-hmm. say? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know what I was expecting out of this film. I got somewhere in the middle, you know, um, I, I really admire, um, how, how much it loves film and 
and and wants to tell a very honest and earnest story. I almost think that this could be a that this is a whole family film. Uh, I mean, this it, would be well, PG, it depends right? Depends on what you what kind of version you watch. There's so many different versions of this movie. I'm noticing that because there mm-hmm. were times when it felt like the editing was just blowing away. Mm-hmm. It was just going so fast. Um, and, and then things just, you know, all of a sudden he's older or all, I mean, literally when he, when he, it's because a man puts his hands in front of his face and then moves his hands and all of a sudden he's, he's older now. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I, I, I see why there's a two hour and 54 minute, like official version. There's the, there's the director's whatever. That's two hours and, and a half. And I got the two hours and four minute like international cut. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but this movie does like kind of blaze right along. It doesn't even feel two hours long. It goes really, really fast because so much happens. Man, I didn't want that kid to grow up. When he was a little kid, <laughs> he's so adorable and precocious. I, I, I was actually disappointed when, when the old yeah. man moved his hands and, and he was all grown up. <laughs> um, it, it was, I was really sad to see the little guy go. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you, I remember you telling me that, that this particularly moved you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was, I'm wondering if it moved you again on the second rewatch. I haven't seen this in a few years. Um, I did not get a chance to rewatch it recently. I, I, I real quick, I don't want to say that I disliked it. I actually like this film, but okay. it's, it's okay. strange. And I'm wondering if you will feel some of the same things that I felt as we talk about it here. I don't know because I've seen it three times at least, and mm-hmm. I'm equally as moved by it for whatever reason. Really? It's one of those movies that just really gets to me. And I was wondering, I like as much as I liked it, I didn't, I didn't see what would have moved you. So that's why I'm wondering. A lot of the connection with the, the just the two, um, him and the Alfredo, and it just the, the moments. I don't know what it is. I spent time in a projection booth in my life. That makes sense. And being in that scenario and having to change out reels and seeing it all happen like the way it does. And um, just a lifetime of... There, there's, there's, there's times when... There's times in my life that I associate with movies directly being the reason I could even like think about getting through that day. Yeah. My parents divorced when I was 11 and I just, no one really cared what the hell I was doing. So I was dropped off at the movie theater by my grandmother for a full day. Just like she'll come back in eight hours kind of thing. Like, and so I don't know what it was and have those connections with those characters and those moments. This movie just found that right wavelength for me. Yeah. Especially in the last 20 minutes or so. Every time I think about the last few minutes of this movie, I tear up a little bit. Uh, I I I do I do and the score yeah the score just yeah, the score. murders me. That that is a beautiful <laughs> score, and there are some really lovely performances in this. It does get a little slapsticky at times, especially in the first like act of the film. Mm-hmm. But um, but you kind of are willing to forgive that big time because of how much like heart the film has, and how like. I don't know. It's it's mostly about good people. Like there's it no is. like there's no villains in the film, and that's kind of reason. refreshing. This movie is in that it just exists in that world. You can forget about anything else that's going on yeah. when you're watching this movie and exist in the world of the movie. And it's just a movie of good. It's yeah, that's what it is. It's really heartwarming. It is. And I was uh, that's my main takeaway from it is it's very heartwarming. And I, they don't make movies like this very often. No, they anymore, don't. Do they? they and don't. when they do, when they try to, it's something like The Artist, you know? And it's not like this. Yeah, you know I don't think I mean? it's earned anymore, like yeah. this kind of feel, this kind of vibe. Yeah. 
I'm not saying it can't be done anymore. Hopefully some more people go off and do things like this. If they were to make this movie nowadays, you know what it would have in it? Adam Devine? No, but it would have a Nazi subplot. Oh, yes, you're right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They tried to get Vera Farmiga to do some sort of accent. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, we, uh, we, I'm going to... What did you give it, by the way? Oh, what did I give it? Oh, it's a four. Okay. Yeah, it's it's solid. It's very solid. It it might be somewhere in between a three and a half and a four, but I still, I understand why you like it so much. Yeah. I just didn't understand why you were moved by it, and you've explained it to me, and I, and I, I accept that. Okay. All right. (laughs) We're not going to talk about the throwback yet, because we're going to reveal it, uh, um, here in a little bit because mm-hmm. because I, I i think this one we don't need we're not challenging one another this week it's a fun themed throwback yeah so that that is going to be the end of our show for today so remember to subscribe to the film harmonic on apple podcasts leave us a review and a generous rating if you're feeling so inclined subscribe also on spotify google play and wherever else you happen to get your podcasts send us your suggestions for the throwback challenge to the film harmonic at gmail.com we will be back next week with the new harrison ford cgi dog adventure film the call of the wild you notice notice how i got through all that without laughing 2020 this is what we come to yep yep uh and speaking of high comedy our pick six this week our pick six this week uh we're taking it to the skies we are ranking the six best films set on airplanes oh lovely yeah, Lovely. So, you know what? Harrison Ford might feature again on this episode yeah. coming up. I mean, it's, and it's all films on airplanes. Everything from yeah. Airplane to United 93. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a mm-hmm. very big, you know, and everything in between. We might have Paul Greengrass and the Zucker Brothers on this thing. <laughs> I, I, I bet we do. Uh, and in honor of our 40th episode next week, we will have one throwback film to discuss. Andy has seen it, but I have not. We will talk about Judd Apatow's This Is 40. Because what else would we talk about? What else would we do? It's called This Is 40. Yes. That's going to be the name of the episode. That ought to be the name of the episode. And people will think that's the only thing we talk about in the episode. This Is 40 is coming. What are we going to do? Call it The Call of the Wild? (laughs) (laughs) We're damn sure not calling it that or Over the Hill. No. We're calling it This Is 40. All right. Well, on that note, I believe we will see you next time on On The the Film Film Harmonic. Harmonic. (laughs) <laughs> so Affleck have a Todd Helton goatee. <laughs> I love that they scrubbed it off for the Criterion cover. Anyway, oh no. Oh my god. It's true. He has a Todd Helton goatee that whole movie. And on the cover, they brush it off. They air photoshopped it off. Oh my 
god. Uh, reading Rob's letterbox reviews is just the best. That's why I'm recording this right now. <laughs> His review for Mallrats, also three and a half. Wow. wow, that's a lot higher than I thought it would Quote, be. Quote, I don't respect people with no shopping agenda. Ben Affleck being referred to as the asshole from fashionable male gets funnier every year. <laughs> that's not wrong. He's not wrong. No, he's not. <laughs> Neck brace. Substitute.